Welcome to Kelly Dry's AdLow Access Podcast, and this is Simone Roach. By now, most of our listeners have likely heard about the FTC's proposed rule to ban non-compete clauses in employment contracts, including from Kelly Dry's other post on the topic discussing the sheer breadth of the proposal and the potential implications for employers. In this podcast, we zero in on an issue that merits a lot more attention than it's getting, namely the serious legal and practical questions that the FTC's proposal raises. Brief recap of how we got here and what the rule would require. This is the first of many rulemakings that the FTC has said it will launch based on its supposed authority to issue rules banning unfair methods of competition, UMCs, under the FTC Act. Notably, starting with a statement of regulatory priorities submitted to OMB in December 2021, the FTC has said repeatedly that it may launch multiple competition rulemakings based on this authority as well as multiple consumer protection rulemakings based on its Magnuson-Moss authority, which it has done. And more recently, the FTC issued a policy statement taking an expansive view of what's an UMC, so the scope of the FTC's intended reach here could be very broad indeed. In brief, as described in more detail in our earlier post, the proposed rule would make it illegal for an employer to, one, enter into or attempt to enter into a non-compete with a worker, defined broadly to include a range of employees and independent contractors at all levels of income and seniority, with few exceptions, two, maintain a non-compete with a worker, meaning that employers must rescind existing agreements and inform current and former employees that the agreements are no longer in effect. Or three, represent that a worker is subject to a non-compete if the employer has no good faith basis to believe the worker is subject to an enforceable non-compete. Preempt inconsistent state statutes, regulations, orders, or interpretations unless such laws afford a worker greater protection than the protection provided under the rule. Extend to other agreements, for example, non-disclosure agreements or agreements to pay for the cost of training new employees if they function like non-competes. The FTC is conducting this rulemaking under the Administrative Procedures Act, meaning that the rule could be finalized and published in the Federal Register after just one round of public comments. Stakeholders can challenge the ruling court as, for example, arbitrary or capricious, unconstitutional, or in excess of statutory authority, but only after the final rule has been issued. Legal and Practical Questions There are a host of ways that the FTC's proposal is vulnerable to challenge, some of which are highlighted in Commissioner Wilson's 14-page dissent to the proposed rule. And here are some of the concerns we believe are most significant. Does FTC even have UMC rulemaking authority? The language on which the FTC is basing the rulemaking, Section 6G of the FTC Act, 
gives the FTC authority to, from time to time, classify corporations and to make rules and regulations for the purpose of carrying out the provisions of this subchapter. And over the years, there's been controversy about whether this refers to substantive rule of the sort the FTC is proposing here or internal FTC housekeeping rules. While one circuit court upheld a UMC rulemaking in 1973, will current courts, which are increasingly skeptical of agency power grabs, be as deferential? Major question. Relatedly, given the breadth of the proposed rule, banning non-competes across the entire U.S. economy and preempting numerous state laws and determinations, a court could find that it raises a major question within the meaning of the Supreme Court's West Virginia versus EPA ruling. And if so, the FTC must be able to point to clear congressional authorization, not vague, rarely used, or ancillary statutory language. To the Supreme Court and lower courts following its lead, the language in Section 6G may look like a textbook example of vague, rarely used, ancillary language. Alternatively, it could be a vague, unintelligible, and improper delegation of legislative power. Is the FTC's sweeping preemption determination valid? Beyond the political issues and confusion created by suddenly preempting multiple state laws, is the FTC's aggressive preemption assertion legally valid? As the cases cited in the FTC's NPRM make clear, an agency's ability to preempt state laws through regulation depends on the clarity and solidity of its grant of authority from Congress, which, as we've discussed here, is on shaky ground, even before considering the deference that antitrust laws accords the states. In addition, the FTC's preemption language refers to greater protection for workers when it should instead refer to greater protection for competition. Retroactivity? The rule would require an employer to unwind previous agreements and notify former employees it has done so if contact information is available. Might this be a retroactive application of the rule, disfavored in the law? See, for example, Bowen versus Georgetown University Hospital, 488 U.S. 204, 1988. In the NPRM, the FTC asserts that the rule isn't retroactive because it applies to maintaining a non-compete after the rule is final. That's a cute semantic argument. The FTC tried something similar, unsuccessfully, in its first rulemaking to implement the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. But the fact remains that the rule would require companies to undo agreements reached in the past. Intrusion on Collective Bargaining The NPRM states, at page 203, that the FTC is not aware of any duplicative, overlapping, or conflicting federal regulations. We think there may be more to the story. In 1965, the Supreme Court held that certain union employer agreements could be given a non-statutory exemption from antitrust liability. The NLRB and the courts have subsequently applied this exemption to parties dealing with non-union workers that engage in concerted activity, 
and there is little doubt that the exemption limits the reach of the FTC Act. In addition, the NLRB has said that employers generally have a duty to bargain over non-compete agreements with unions representing the employees, a ruling that would seem to put non-competes that are the subject of collective bargaining squarely within the scope of the exemption. How the non-statutory exemption might apply in a UMC rulemaking is an open question. However, this issue should be addressed in the final rule. Will the rule be a morass when companies try to follow it? Several features of the proposal could make it a true mess if and when the rule becomes final. For example, who decides whether state laws are more or less protective than the rule? The FTC? Or the courts? And while those questions are being resolved, how will companies know what law to follow? And also, how will companies, especially small companies without HR departments, determine whether various agreements that are non-competes function like non-competes? And how difficult, costly, and confusing might it be for small and large companies alike to reach out to former employees to rescind agreements? These are just some of the thorny questions raised by the FTC's far-reaching proposal. Arbitrary and capricious? Finally, if the rule remains as sweeping and potentially confusing as what the FTC has proposed, it's very possible that a court could ultimately find it to be arbitrary and capricious, which, as articulated recently by the Supreme Court, means not reasonable and reasonably explained, with reasonable consideration of the relevant issues. Indeed, on top of the issues we have outlined above, Commissioner Wilson argues in her dissent that the majority's proposal relies on studies that are a mixed bag, as well as a scant enforcement record, and gives insufficient consideration to business justifications. The FTC may correct or reduce these problems in its final rule, but only if stakeholders submit strong and persuasive comments. And of course, we are tracking developments on this rulemaking closely and will continue to post updates here. If you'd like more information on what you've heard on this topic, please contact either Jessica Rich, Kate White, or Bill McLeod, and you can find their contact details in the show notes. And also, please see our Advertising and Privacy Law Resource Center available at kellydry.com. And please download the AdLaw Access app for Apple and Android phones available in the Apple app and Google Play stores.